Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Um, so all summer long, I've kind of had a, a mantra or a saying, uh, and it existed all the way through September. And my saying was this, all you need is love, right? All you need is love, baby. All you need is love. And of course, I'm talking not about the Beatles, but about Jordan love, right? Like Rogers is gone. All you need is love. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fantastic. And I had these great hopes and expectations for the Packers this year. And on the first game of the year, they delivered. If you remember, people were talking about Justin Fields being MVP. <laughs> it's so funny now. And they thought the Bears were going to win the conference. And like, like they thought the Bears were amazing. No chance the Packers could win. And then the Packers blew them out. And you're like, yes, we're still great. It's still amazing. The next week, we lost by a point. Following week, we had a great comeback and won by a point. The next week, I think we lost by 14 to Detroit, which was understandable. But then we were going to hit the cupcake teams, the really bad teams, the dumpster fires, the ones that were falling apart. All right? And so we played Las Vegas, and all their staff just got fired. They're so horrible. And we still lost. And then we played Denver, who gave up 70 to Kansas City, and we still lost. And then came last Sunday, and I remember just feeling like, all right, this week is the week. And at one point, I turned to my kids and I said, it went from bad to worse. It went from bad to worse. And I don't, if you watch it, you probably know that the Packers didn't get a first down until there was four minutes left in the half. Um, this season, uh, in the first quarter, if I can find the statistics here, I think they have 15 penalties in the first quarter and only 13 points in the first quarter. Uh, they've been outscored in the last five games in the first half, 73 to 9. After the last game, Coach LaFleur said, it's just like, you know, we're a mess right now. We have become everyone's homecoming opponent. Players and coaches and fans are discouraged. And we're a bit afraid that this embarrassment is going to go on for many years. This chapter in the book of Joshua has a similar feel. In Joshua chapter 6, led by Joshua, they have this amazing and fantastic victory over Jericho, this well-fortified city in Canaan. And I'm sure they were on this spiritual high and sensed a nearness of God and the greatness of God. But then it happened. Graham preached out last week, did a fantastic job. But in chapter 7, it begins that the people of Israel broke faith in regard to devoted things, for Achan took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Achan was not the only one guilty in this chapter. Joshua and the men decided to go and attack AI, uh, which does not stand for artificial intelligence. Uh, it's actually a city, AI. And sent about 3,000 of the men without consulting the Lord. And they were defeated. 36 of their men died. 
And as a result of this sin, Israel felt defeated. They felt discouraged. It actually tells us that Joshua started questioning the goodness of God. He says, why did you bring us into this land? We should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Did you bring us over here just to exterminate, just to wipe us out off the face of the earth? He actually got down and put dirt on his head and he was crying out. He was discouraged. He was embarrassed. He was afraid. And in the midst of his discouragement, the Lord speaks to him and he says, arise. Arise, discouraged one. Do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. Do not be afraid. Get up and fight. Let's look together, Joshua chapter 8, page 183 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and it's 183. You will need the Bible if you don't have one, so please open that up. Keep it open for the duration of the sermon. If you don't own a Bible, that is for you to take. Uh, We love to give away copies of God's word. But Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. And may I say, if you come here today discouraged, Christian, this is God's word for you. Joshua 8, verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its kings. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is timeless, and it is always timely. And so, Lord, we come today with our discouragement. Some of us, surprised we even made it here this morning, we're so discouraged. And we come thirsty for your word, thirsty for your truth, thirsty for your ministry through your Holy Spirit. We come. Encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been a Christian for more than a few minutes, you know that there are times of spiritual highs where you feel like you're this close to Jesus and you can see his face and you're celebrating all the great things he's doing in your life and the life of loved ones. But then there are those other days where you are at spiritual lows, where you feel extremely discouraged. You feel a little bit like the Green Bay Packers. You feel like you can't win, like you are pedaling in quicksand and you're discouraged and dismayed and Seems like there's no way out. I'm curious, where is the source of discouragement in your life this morning? Maybe you're discouraged because of declining health or because of chronic pain. Maybe you're discouraged by your adult children who you were hoping would follow the Lord faithfully but don't seem to care too much. Maybe you are discouraged because your marriage seems so difficult, it's so hard to get along and to have conversations. Maybe you're discouraged because your workplace seems absolutely toxic. Maybe you're discouraged because your younger kids keep fighting and complaining and then complaining and then fighting and then fighting and complaining and complaining and fighting. 
Maybe you're discouraged that you don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or that your athletic and academic and abilities seem to be keeping you out of the good life. Maybe it is a lack of authentic friendship. Maybe you're discouraged by the way that things are going in the world and how our country seems to be declining morally and spiritually. If that's not all depressing enough, let me give you one more thing that you might be discouraged about. Two weeks, we talked about a strategy for victory over sin in your life. How's that going? Have you lost your temper again? Have you thought about things or looked at things or done things again that you promised never to do again? Christian, wherever you come discouraged this morning, God has a word for you. The Lord says, arise. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Keep fighting the good fight. Now, what does this look like practically? We'll see there are three ways that we are to arise and to keep fighting. First, we are to plan strategically. Secondly, we are to fight victoriously. And third, we are to celebrate worshipfully. So first, discouraged Christian, arise and plan strategically. Look at verse one with me again, if you would. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. It can also be translated discouraged. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its kings. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And so the Lord says, go up to I, do to them as you did to Jericho, except this time you get to keep the plunder. We'll talk more about that later. And then verse two continues, and God gives a little bit of a direction on how they are to take the city of I. He says, lay an ambush against the city behind it. Now, this is important um, to what we're getting at here, but the Lord gives a directive to Joshua, but the directive is fairly vague. Right? He says, attack it from behind. He doesn't say when to do this, why to do this, or how to do it. He just says, attack it from behind. And so what we see is that Joshua takes this directive from the Lord, this command from the Lord, and he gives it more detail. He puts a strategy around accomplishing what the Lord has commanded him. Look at verse 3 through 7 with me. He says, so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before in the last chapter, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we draw them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. All right, so let's go ahead and take a moment here and look at the map up here. Um, if you could put that map up, that would be great. 
I'm sorry for this side of the room where we're having uh, projector issues, but, but Israel is, is encamped here at Gilgal. Obviously, they took over Jericho, and now they're going up to Ai, and uh, it's about a 17-mile journey up there from Jericho. And again, the Lord gives Joshua a very simple strategy, which is to attack from the backside. And Joshua develops this, uh, this, this dictation from God, this, this command from God, into a full-blown strategy. And what he does is he takes 30,000 of his troops and he puts them behind the city uh, of Ai to the west. Go ahead and go to the next map, if you would. And so here they are at Gilgal. And so he takes 30,000 of his soldiers and he has them go under the cover of night and camp out here west of the city. Evidently, the front of the city is up here to the north. And so they camp out here uh, in the hill country where they're hidden from the city of Ai. All right. And then what's going to happen next is that he's going to take 5,000 men and come to the front of Ai. And that's the strategy that he's made. We're going to go to the front. We're going to kind of show them we're here. And then we're going to make them chase after us. And once they chase us, uh, you go into the city and burn it to the ground, okay? So let's see how it goes as they put it into practice. Verse 9 through 11. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay behind, between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people in Gigal. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai, the 5,000 troops, and all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. You know, there is, uh, I've read this multiple times and there's some geography about it that is a little bit confusing. If you could put that map back up, basically what I think is happening here um, is that they're going to encamp here behind the mountains so they can't be seen. And then the 30,000 troops and then 5,000 troops will be out here in front of Ai. And then once they're spotted, they're actually going to come down uh, maybe through this region or maybe through this region back out to the wilderness. And they're going to draw the fighting men of Ai, but also the fighting men of Bethel will see. And the men of Bethel have a common interest at destroying uh, this, this people that are coming in to take over the land. And so they're going to draw them out so that Israel can go in and conquer that territory. So again, uh, let's see how it goes. Uh, verse, verse 12 says he took about, did we do verse 12 already? Sorry. Did we? No. All right. Let's do verse 12. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard, the 30,000 men west of the city. But Joshua spent the night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place towards the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So they went south by southeast. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Verse 17, not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued it. And so at this time, it seems like the command of the Lord and the strategy that Joshua has put around that command is working. They have brought all of these men out of the city, leaving it open and vulnerable to attack. But here's the thing again. The Lord gives Joshua a fairly simple and somewhat vague directive, which is 
lay an ambush behind the city, like come behind the city to attack it. But then Joshua develops this strategy, again, of putting 30,000 troops to the west in the hill country and bringing 5,000 troops up above to draw them out and draw them away from the city. Here's the point. Whatever battle you are in that you feel discouraged about, maybe you feel you're losing, in your discouragement, the Lord has given you directives. And your job is to strategically put those directives or those commands into practice. Let me give you an example, something very recent, very near to me. Uh, Over the past few weeks, I've just kind of felt distant from the Lord. Don't know if you've ever felt that or if it's just me, but just felt like, you know, um, just feel like God's kind of not in the same sphere as me and, and trying to figure out why that is. And while I was on vacation, I was journaling. And, I, and what I discovered is that I kind of treat God like I treat you all on Sunday morning, okay? Uh, not with insincerity, but like it's, hey, how are you? Good to see you. All right, next person. Hey, how are you? Nice to see you. Next person. Hey, how are you? Nice to see you. What's going on in your life, right? And it's sincere and it's genuine, but it's just very superficial and it's brief and it's quick, which is perfectly fine on Sunday mornings. That's what it needs to be. But it's not okay in my relationship with the Lord. And what I discovered was I was not taking the time to avail myself to what's called the means of grace, which is the word of God and prayer, also sacraments. And so during that time, I was journaling, and I know God says that I am to study his word, to know his word, to cherish his word, to memorize his word, to pray his word. And then I'm supposed to be in communion with God through prayer, but I've just been doing it like I've been so busy, I just do little chunk, little chunk, little chunk, and there's no depth in it. And so I created a, a resolution, a 30 resolution, I call it. And the first 30 minutes of the day during the week, I'm going to just spend time with God. And so literally I I go and either in my house or go to where I study in the morning and I pull out my phone and I set a timer for 30 minutes. And it seems very calculated, very cheesy, but it is the strategy that I'm trying to put in place to be faithful to the commands that God has given to me to restore intimacy with the Lord. And so the first day, uh, it was great. Uh, 30 minutes, reading, praying, fantastic. The second day was a little trickier because it was my first day back at work. Literally had over 500 emails to respond to. I'm like, I don't have time to spend 30 minutes with God, but I'm going to do it because it's only the second day and I don't want to fail on the second day. And so I set the timer for 30 minutes and I'm reading and I'm praying and I'm reading books about the word and God and, and 30 minutes gets done and I'm like, I got to keep going. So I go another five minutes, another 10 minutes, felt like I was just getting warmed up. And so here's the point. God gives us directives for our battles, but he calls us to strategically implement them. You see, God has given you commands for your marriage, for parenting, for spiritual growth. He's given you commands for singleness, for how to in- engage our culture. He's given us commands for how to grow in our relationship with, our, with the Lord. They're all contained in the word of God. But our job is to know these directives from God, to know these commands from God, and then strategically apply them to our life. It has been famously said, if you fail to plan, plan to fail, right? And so God has, by his grace, given us his commands. And I think so many reasons why that God hasn't given us particular strategies to implement them is because he knows that he is writing this to various cultures throughout various times, and they need to be implemented in the situation that you are in to the particular person. And so we must know the word of God, know the commands of God, know the directives of God, and then seek to implement them in every area of our life. And so first, 
wherever you are discouraged, wherever the battle seems hard, wherever it seems like you are straining and getting nowhere, arise, keep fighting, plan strategically. Secondly, he says, arise and fight victoriously. Let's look quickly back at verse one. This may sound familiar uh, if you've been around here, but it says, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. And then this is the important part. See, I have given. Not I will give, but I have given. It is a past perfect tense. I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Again, this is the prophetic perfect in which Lord says, I have given to communicate future victory that is already assured. It's already been assured as if it has been completed and finished in the past. In a way, the Lord is pulling back the curtain to tell Joshua that it is his sovereign and perfect plan to give Israel victory over AI. But here's the thing. Joshua still had to create a strategy, right? Israel still had to go and fight the battle. This is important because many times when we come to faith in Christ and we start wrestling with the sovereignty of God over all things, we wonder to ourselves, does this just make me a robot? Does it even matter what I do or if I do anything? I mean, if God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, maybe I should just sit at home and drink coffee all the time. We see clearly in Joshua 8 that while the Lord is sovereign over the victory of Ai, Joshua and Israel are still responsible to fight the battle, to fight the good fight of faith. What we do on a daily battle, on a daily basis, matters a lot. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does what you do matter? Absolutely. Skip down to verse 15. It says, And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. We're just kind of recapping here. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Verse 18, game time. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand towards Ai. And then this is important. For I will, this is Lord speaking, I will, I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand towards the city. This is reminiscent of Exodus chapter 17, which took place probably about 40 years earlier, when under Moses' leadership, Joshua led Israel into battle against Amalek. And whenever Moses held his hand up, Israel prevailed. And whenever he got tired, Israel started to fail, right? And so they held his arm up so that they would prevail. We'll talk more about this in a little bit. Verse 19 through verse 26. It says, And the men in the ambush, the 30,000 hiding, rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled in the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. That's the 5,000 Israelites turned back against them. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, 
and that the smoke of the city went up. Then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others, verse 22, and the others came out from the city against them. That is the 30,000 men came out against the people of Ai. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. So two things I want to cover here really quick. First off, the question always arises in the book of Joshua, why would a good God wipe out an entire city? And we talked about this at length in Joshua chapter 6. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But the short answer is that the Lord wiped out Ai because that's what justice demanded. They were a wicked people on the level with Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, when God promises Abraham his descendants would inhabit the land of Canaan, the promised land, the Lord says with that, and I think we have the verse up here, Genesis 15, 16. He says this, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete meaning they have not reached, their sin has not reached to the level of national judgment. So God delays bringing the people of God into the promised land for 600 years, over half a millennium, to allow the sins of this people to reach to the point that deserves national judgment. The second thing I want to highlight here is Joshua's spear. Why did God have Joshua lift up this spear? To show that it, to, to, so that as he lifted up the spear, Israel would be victorious. Why was this so important? It seems very odd. Well, in the battle of Jericho, uh, the victory was by such a bizarre and extraordinary tactic. Uh, you know, the marching band walking around the city and then screaming, right? That was their, the, the, the battle was so bizarre that it was clear that it was the Lord who gave the victory. But this one is a little bit different. The people are in hand-to-hand combat. They could think, oh, it's our strategy that won the war. It is our might that won the war. But the raised javelin, the raised spear was a reminder that the victory ultimately belonged to God. And so he had him raise the spear as a reminder that the battle is the Lord and the victory belongs to the Lord. Dr. Edwin Cole says that the Christian life is not difficult to live. It is impossible to live. And so while we may fight the good fight of faith, while we're called to fight the good fight of faith, ultimately the battle and the victory belongs to the Lord. I could tell you from our church about marriage after marriage after marriage that was destined for either separation or miserably ever after. One of those twos. And yet the Lord had restored those marriages. Not perfectly, but gloriously, he has restored those marriages. Did the couple have to work hard? Absolutely. Did they have to fight the good fight for their marriage? Absolutely. But all of them would say, 
It is the Lord who did the heavy lifting. It is the Lord who gave us victory in our marriage. You know, I think it was Elizabeth Elliot who said, we are not called to live on a cruise ship, but on a battleship. Christian, we are called to fight, but the battle and the victory ultimately belongs to the Lord. And as we move on, what we will see is that as the Lord wins the victory, he also gives us the blessings of the triumph. Look at verse 27 with me. He says, only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. Again, Jericho was the first fruits of the promised land. And so God says, devote everything from Jericho to me, either to destruction or put it into the treasury. But now the Lord is pouring out the bounty upon his people. Verse 28 continues, so Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. Again, a reminder of the power of God, the victory of God, and a warning against rebellion. Verse 29, and he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which they would have been well aware of, it says that any man who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And so they section out the king of Ai as a representative of the people of Ai, and they hang him on the tree, representing the curse of God that is upon them. If you're a Christian, this probably sounds familiar to you. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The king of Ai died as a representative of the cursedness of the people of Ai. But your king, my king, King Jesus, also hung on a tree, but this time to absorb the curse of his people so that we could forever be recipients of the blessings and the bounty of God. Verse 29 continues. It says, And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from a tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Throughout the book of Joshua, we see all of these heaps of stones being put together. And all of them are a reminder of the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God. And this particular heap of stones is a reminder to Israel that the Lord is God of second chances and of third chances and of fourth chances and of 99th chances. The Lord has not given up on them. The Lord has called them to arise and to fight, to restore them. Because we fight, while we might lose certain battles, we can fight knowing that the Lord has already won the war. In the summers, I play on a softball team. Um, it's a bunch of Catholic guys to me. It's super fun. They're great. They call me Rev or different things. It's, it's fun. Um, but there are times that we will show up at the game and the other team does not have enough people and we have to wait like 10 minutes and sure enough, not enough people shows up. And so before the game even begins, the umpire will call out a forfeit. Uh, they will say, you guys have won. I think it's 7-0, one run for every inning, uh, but you guys win. Um, but what we usually do during, after that is that we go on to play the game. 
right? It's kind of like a scrimmage. Uh, and so, you know, we get our kids out on the field. If we, we give them a few players, you know, never, you know, we bat left-handed. If we're right-handed, we have non-pitchers pitching and we just go out there and we have fun. And there's no stress uh, because we know we've already won the game. It's already been determined, but we're going out there to play, to have fun, to do it, right? Today, many in the church live in a posture of defeat, if you listen to some Christian podcasts or some Christian radio stations, they will tell you that the sky is falling, that the church is on the brink of destruction, and that Christianity is only two generations from becoming extinct. Maybe you have heard this. Friends, that is trash. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is what the Apostle John says. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Does that sound like defeat? No, it sounds like victory. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, talking about when we die, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up, not in defeat, in victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why is your labor not in vain? Why is your battling not in vain? Why is your work not in vain? because we are already victorious in Christ. We fight the battles knowing that Jesus has already won the war. We know the end of the story. Church, we win. That is the good news of the gospel. We fight in the shadow of victory, not in the shadow of defeat. And so when someone tells you that the church is coming to an end. Say, no, my God is all I need. He is faithful. He will prevail. We will win in the end. What we do matters. God calls us in our discouragement, arise and fight. It may kind of just be a scrimmage, but the victory has already been won. We go and we fight in the midst of Christ's victory on our behalf. And so where are you discouraged, Christian? Arise and plan strategically according to God's directives. Arise and fight victoriously, knowing that Christ has already won the war. But finally, arise and celebrate worshipfully. Look at verse 30 with me. It says, At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he, Joshua, wrote on the stone a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So that's either the book of Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments, or maybe even the Pentateuch, okay? But Israel, which is about two million people, that were encamped at Gilgal by Jericho, make this 25-mile journey. So if you look at the map here, again, they're down at Gilgal. They come out here to Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, which are much closer than that, but that's the way it is on the map. And so they make this, like, 
huge inconvenience journey. Uh, two million of them. I mean, it must have taken three days just to get there, at least three days to get back. But they go there as commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 26. And so what's happened in Deuteronomy chapter 26 is there's this beautiful covenant renewal ceremony before the people of God are about to go into the promised land of God. And what Moses says is, hey, as we are renewing the covenant of the Lord here in this, in, this, in this space right now, Joshua, I want you to do that when you guys get into the promised land. I want you to do that at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And so now they're doing that. They're, they're doing a covenant renewal ceremony. Verse 33, we see there's a special ceremony associated with it. It says, in all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings, that is to those who obey God's word, and the curses to those who do not, according to all that is written in the book of the law. If you read this closely, you'll see how Bible-centered this covenant renewal ceremony is. Verse 35 says, There is not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So we actually have a picture of modern-day Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Um, you can see it here. Here's Mount Gerizim. Here's Mount Ebal. And people have reported going to these mountains and have noticed how it creates this natural amphitheater uh, and where you can actually talk from one mountain and hear them clearly on the other mountain. There's something, I don't know, about it that, that makes that possible. And so God calls them to come there and, and half of them to stand on this side and half of them stand on this side. And then the Ark of the Covenant passed in between them. And one of the things that happens as they get going is that they put up here an altar and they start making sacrifices to the Lord. And on one side, uh, they pronounce the curses and, and just that, you know, if you disobey the Lord, it brings misery. We know this from our own life. But if you obey the Lord, it brings blessing. And they say that from Mount Gerizim. And they say this back and forth. And so this ceremony goes on. And what is so interesting about this um, is that the altar where they made sacrifice was not constructed in the valley, uh, and it wasn't constructed on Mount Gerizim, but it was constructed on Mount Ebal. And, and why is this important? Why is this so wonderful? Well, my favorite commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, puts it this way. He says, the answer is that Ebal was a mountain from which the curses were to be read, while Gerizim was a mountain from which the blessings of the upright were declared. In other words, the altar was for sinners. It was for those who acknowledged their sin and who came not as the righteous, but as sinners to the place of sacrifice. You know, once again, again, God is pointing us to his glorious gospel, that for those who confess their sin, there is a sacrifice. And it is not upon stone, but upon wood. It is not a sacrifice of bulls and of goats, but it's the sacrifice of God's one and only son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It's the Lord speaking. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. 
get this, for those who confess their sins before the Lord, on the cross, Jesus takes all the covenant curses that are proclaimed on Mount Ebal so that we might receive all the covenant blessings that are pronounced for Mount Gerizim. After the battle of Ai, after entering the promised land, the Lord calls Israel to gather and to celebrate worshipfully with sacrifices of, for sin, with warnings and with blessings from his word, with the word of God being written and spoken and recited with feasting, which was a part of this, and rejoicing. It was a beautiful covenant renewal ceremony. Christian, are you discouraged? This is why we come to church every Sunday morning. You know, this past week, let me end with this. This past week, I was, I was, uh, I was on vacation, and I don't know if you remember, it was a staycation, and my big hope for my staycation was to replace the deck on the back of the house. Um, but if you remember, Monday, it rained and rained and rained. Tuesday, it rained and rained and rained. Wednesday, it rained and rained. Thursday, it rained and rained and rained. And I saw this forecast and I was discouraged. I'm like, oh man, how am I going to get this all done before I go back to work? And so what did I do? I decided I'm just going to go out in the rain and start working. And so I get out there and I saw up the boards and I tear them up and I throw them in the trailer and I'm pulling out nails and hammering the nails and I'm stepping in mud and it's just nasty. And it's just, you know, it's just yucky, right? It's not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to do this in the summer, but this is the time that I had to do it. And so I'm out there and it got so cold where I couldn't feel my fingers, couldn't feel my toes. And what allowed me to go on was the times of renewal. The times where I would go inside and I would put on dry clothing and I would sit by the fire with a hot drink and a hot uh, plate of food. And my body would be renewed for that, through that. And I'd be there for an hour, two hours, just being renewed. And then I would go back and I'd swing the hammer and I'd get cold and be nasty. And this went on, on again and again and again. Friends, when you, when you go back out into the world, there are going to be some very rainy and discouraging days as you seek to live for God, as you seek to fight the good fight of faith. And what the Lord not recommends, but commands us to do is to come together Sunday after Sunday to worship with great celebration, to renew our covenant with God, that together we would come together into the sanctuary and that we would hear again from the word of the Lord, just like Israel did, that we would recite the word of the word, that we'd hear it taught and preached just like Israel did, that, that, we would, that we would feast together on the Lord's Supper just as Israel did in that day, that we would rejoice together, that we'd celebrate together just as Israel did in that day, that we would do all of those things that they did on those two mountains. But here's the difference. One thing that they did that we do not do is that they would make a sacrifice for sin. But we no longer do that because Jesus is our final sacrifice for sin. I read a quote this week that said, you don't fail when you fall down. You fail when you don't get back up. And so Christian, where are you discouraged? God says, don't be afraid. Arise, keep fighting, plan strategically, fight triumphantly. And then celebrate week after week, Sunday after Sunday, celebrate worshipfully. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful that you did not leave us in our discouragement. You didn't leave us in our frustrations. 
but God, that you have come near to us in your son, Jesus, that you have written your word for us as, as directives on how we can live life to the fullest. And God, you've also done it so that we can be renewed in our spirits to go and continue to fight in the midst of discouragement and to remember the victory that has already been won by Christ. And so God, pray again that you would help us to get back up in the midst of our discouragement, to arise, to continue forward faithfully with our eyes fixed upon you, our victor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.